Hello and welcome to 10 by 9 where nine people have up to 10 minutes each to tell a true story from their own life. I'm Paul Doran and this is the 10 by 9 podcast. This week, 10 by 9 was back in the black box and for the first time in two and a half years, we had a full house, which was wonderful. The theme was once when I was younger and the stories were amazing. There are three of them on this podcast for you. I curled up in the fetal position and thinking I was being kicked to death, remember hoping it would all be over soon. He bends over and whips the trousers down, total silence. Except for me and Mark and Andy, we were buckled up laughing. I walked into the store and perused the options, spending some time in the fine wine section. (laughs) I looked thoughtfully at the labels, you know, the way adults do. (laughs) Our three storytellers were new to the black box, but you wouldn't know it. First up, here's Jared Devlin. The Park Picture House was during the heyday of Belfast cinemas. A fine example of the characteristic Art Deco style that distinguished many of these film palaces and contributed to their success, providing an enjoyable night out for the public in opulent surroundings. With the decline of cinema going from the 1960s onward and the onset of the troubles, many of these closed down, were burnt down, or blown up. Situated on the old park road, the park, as it was known, was nestled within a kind of no man's land, what we would now call an interface at the top of the nationalist bone area and the loyalist neighborhood beyond it. By 1971, it had been reduced to something of a dilapidated shell of its former glory. Nonetheless, it continued to function. Spaghetti westerns, carry-on films, hammer horror, and kung fu movies were its general fare. One night in 1971, several teenage friends and I went there to see The Good, The Bad, and The Ugly. There wasn't a sizable audience. Most were teenagers gathered in groups towards the back. We seated ourselves in a row in the middle of the auditorium, which was practically empty. After about 20 minutes, two older guys, they were about 18, but when you're 16, that age gap is significant, sat down in the row right in front of us. Their choice of seating was unusual, to say the least. There were plenty of other seats to choose from, but their motivation soon became evident when they began to speak to each other in tones loud enough for us to hear. Comments like, that guy looks like an orange man, Eamon. And that's like something you'd see on the Shankle Road, Mickey. (laughs) Led to the inevitable next stage, turning around in their seats and quizzing us where we were from, our names, what school did we go to, and so on. Myself and my pal Patty were the spokespersons, sitting as we were right behind them. After responding obsequiously to the interrogation, we were then asked to recite the Hail Mary. (laughs) So, 
to the agonized strains of Ennio Morricone's score, and as a cigar-chomping Clint Eastwood casually dispensed with grizzled desperados, there we were in the darkened theater, muttering the Hail Mary prayer, while our two inquisitors listened intently. Would that suffice, we hoped? Evidently, yes, and satisfied with our credentials, the duo settled back to watch the movie, as did we. But relaxing and enjoying it was shot through with unease, considering the circumstances. Compounding this anxiety was the occasional disconcerting sounds of sudden loud rattles and clangs. We found out a few weeks later that some of the clientele at the back had been inexplicably in possession of some wrought iron nuts and bolts, and we were target practice. Upon leaving at the end, we didn't seem to notice the groups of young people young guys hovering at the exit and the foyer. As we made our way down Old Park Road, I remember hearing a clatter of feet running behind us, and then all hell broke loose. A torrent of kicks, lunt instruments, and blows rained down, and I buckled. It felt like a skip load of debris was being emptied on top of me. I curled up in the fetal position, and thinking I was being kicked to death, Remember, hoping it would all be over soon. It probably lasted for about 20 to 30 seconds, but seemed like a lot more. I then heard guys shouting over the blows that we were Catholics and to let me up. This was the delegation of two who had quizzed us. Seemingly, they hadn't thought to inform their associates at the back of the theatre that we weren't demons. Most of the rest of my friends had, in the confusion, managed to get away unscathed. Only one had suffered a few punches and kicks. I scrambled to my feet, and my left eye was swollen to the size of half a tennis ball. It was completely shut. I thought I'd lost it. There followed much chaos and noise, guys shouting, shoving, pushing, Teenage girls squealing, and me in the middle of it all, loudly proclaiming my Catholic status, lest the whole wretched business should kick off again. After the Fiori died down, our two interrogators, possibly feeling that they could have prevented all this from happening, obligingly escorted myself and my friend out of the area to the relative safety of the Cliftonville Road, later to become known as Murder Mile. And that was that. Time to go home and face the parents, looking like I'd gone five rounds with Muhammad Ali. Naturally, they were upset. My mother was distraught. I was reluctant to tell them where it had happened. The Old Park Road was, at that time, not a good place to be at night. Accordingly, I thought my father might chastise me for being up there, so I spun a story that it had happened on the Antrim Road, nearer to home. Somehow, I figured this might be more acceptable for them to come to terms with. In hindsight, it wouldn't have made any difference. 
I still have a legging for spaghetti westerns. Despite their sometimes shabby, but often stylized production values, dodgy dialogue, and diabolical dubbing. But I haven't seen that film since then. People remember where they were and what they were doing whenever Kennedy got shot or when the 9-11 attacks happened. I don't remember much about the film, but I do remember that for me, the good, the bad, and the ugly didn't just play out on the screen that night. It happened in the Park Cinema and on the street outside in Belfast, 1971. Thanks so much, Jared. You really evoked such a sense of threat and menace. Brilliant. And if you think you can follow in Jared's footsteps, then get in touch through the submissions page on our website at 10 We are always looking for storytellers and we've plenty of events to fill. You can also contact us through our social media channels, Facebook, Twitter and Instagram. Even if you've only a scintilla of an idea, we'll help you to bring it to life. Okay, next up is Barney Gribben. Just be warned, there's one small outburst of F-bombs, but when you hear the context, you'll understand. Health and safety has gone mad. Years ago in the building sites, they were very dangerous, and there was a call for health and safety, but today they've just gone over the top. If you were to follow all the rules and regulations of health and safety, you wouldn't have time left at the end of the day to do any work. About seven years ago in London, there was a building site, there had been rain, and there was puddles on the site. There were a couple of inches deep. And there's a few of the guys thought, do you know what would be a bit of crack? If we dug a hole about two foot deep, filled it with water, it'll look like the rest of the puddles. <laughs> we'll get somebody to walk through it and they'll fall in and get soaked. Jesus, it'll be great fun. <laughs> we were easy entertained on the building sites, I can tell you. So they got a guy to walk through the puddle. He fell in and he broke his ankle. <laughs> he took a case against the company and he won. The judge ruled that it wasn't an accident. The hole was dug with the intention of somebody falling into it. The insurance paid out, and from that, horseplay is no longer allowed on the building sites. <laughs> when I was younger, it was practically compulsory to have horseplay on the building sites. <laughs> you couldn't go through a week. I'm telling you, you had to have your wits about you. There was something happening all the time. And one of the trusted gimmicks for a bit of a prank was the tea bag. You put a tea bag in somebody's sandwich. Now, that's a story for another day. This story is where you get somebody to sit in a tea bag. Now, I'm sure you've all seen somebody making your cup of tea. You stir the tea and then you tap the spoon, in, the spoon in the back of somebody's hand and it gives them a jolt. Well, it's similar to that, only you're getting them to sit on a tea bag. <laughs> so we were in the canteen. Now, when I say the canteen, it was um, a shipping cabinet or a shipping unit. Uh, the table was an eight before sheet of plywood, and down the sides of it was planks that were sitting on blocks. That was our seats. And everybody had their own seat. There was about 10 of us in there. My spot was here. Chrissy's spot was here, and Andy's spot was here. And you had your flask of hot water, you made your cup of tea, you dipped the tea bag in the cup and threw the bag in the bin. And this particular day, I had taken the tea bag out of the cup just as Chrissy was coming into the canteen. And as he went to sit down, I slipped the tea bag underneath him. <laughs> and he sat down. Now, normally you get an instant reaction, but there was a bit of a delay. <laughs> Chrissy, it turns out, he was wearing long johns. <laughs> So it took a while for the heat to get through, but when it got through, by God, it got through. He let a yelp out of him and he jumped up 
and the language that he came out of him, I said, I couldn't possibly say it here tonight. <laughs> and I hadn't told anybody in the canteen what I was doing, but they were all in fits of laughter. We were easy pleased, I can tell you, in the building site. Now, just remember, we're the boys that build your houses. <laughs> so it came to one o'clock tea break again. Chrissy was the last man coming into the canteen. Just as Andy was taking the tea bag out of the cup, he went to sit down and Andy slipped the tea bag in and Chrissy sits on it again. Aye! And the air was blue with language that I couldn't repeat. The canteen were in fits of laughter at it. I just can't believe that health and safety don't allow this. It's unbelievable. <laughs> so the next morning then on the site, just before 10 o'clock break, myself and Andy were chatting, could we catch Chrissy out again? And I says, no, he's on to us now. Like, he'll never fall for it again. And Andy says, I think we could, you know, because he thinks the tea bag's sitting on the plank all the time. He doesn't realize that we're slipping it in there at the last second. <laughs> right, we'll give it a go. So myself and Andy get into the canteen nice and early, like a pair of naughty children with their hot tea bags at the ready. <laughs> Chrissy comes in and he looks down at the plank. He gives it a bit of a wipe. He looks down this side, gives it a wipe, and he sat down as I threw the tea bag in this side. <laughs> And he let her roar out of him when he got up. I tell you, it was language you wouldn't hear in kindergarten. <laughs> and he turned to me and he says, do you know what's wrong? The tea bag's the same color as the plank. That's why I didn't see it. Because I, I must have just missed it. And Jesus, that hurt. I gave the plank another wipe and he sat down just as Andy put one on this side. <laughs> ah, you pair of fucking bastards. <laughs> How the fuck did I not see that? If you'd have been in the canteen that day, you'd have seen grown men cry with laughter. It was, on, it was an absolute pantomime, I'm telling you. Now, at that time, there was four of us at motorbikes. There was myself, Mark, Chrissy, and Andy. And it was quite common that we'd head to Donegal for the weekend. So we got on the bikes, we headed to Ballyliffin, parked the bikes up, and took the taxi down to the local bar. And as luck would have it, there was a hen night on. <laughs> Boy, we were having fun, I'm telling you. It was the middle of September, and we thought Christmas had come early. The crack was going good, it was coming near the end of the night, the last set of songs were being played, and some of the girls then started to coax me to get up and do a strip tease. <laughs> and I says, no, 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 we'll not be doing that. Come on, a bit of crack, the hen will love it. Come on, get up. I says, no, okay. I says, the barman will throw me out. The barman's my dad, he'll be okay with it, don't worry. <laughs> and I could see over her shoulder then that the DJ was starting to pull the plugs out of his equipment, and I says, oh, we can't do it now, the, the DJ's packing up. And she says, he's my brother. I'll get him to put on the full Monty. <laughs> I thought, oh, there's no way. I'm not getting out of this here. So she came back and says, right, he's ready when you are. And I says, no, I can't. And then Chrissy goes, I'll do it. <laughs> Good man, Chrissy. He bailed me out. So the DJ puts on the full Monty. Chrissy gets up and he starts dancing. Takes off the leather jacket. Sets it in the chair. He's not, he's not throwing that into the crowd. <laughs> he takes off his jumper and he swings it around and he throws it into the crowd and the girls are going mad and myself and Mark and Andy were egging the whole thing on. Then he takes off the t-shirt, swings it above his head, flies it into the crowd. Oh, the girls are going crazy. And we're looking at each other thinking, he's going to score big time tonight. <laughs> then he starts to tease him with the trousers, eh? Wiggling side by side, he opens the buckle on his belt, and then he opens the button, down with the zip, shaking the hips, and the girls are going mad. And then he turns around, shaking his hips at them, winking at them over his shoulder. He bends over and whicks the trousers down. Total silence. Except for me and Mark and Andy, we were buckled up laughing. Chrissy had forgotten he was still wearing the long johns with the big brown tea stain in the back of <laughs> Talk about losing your audience. 
as soon as he tried on, he pulled down the long johns to show a pristine, clean pair of pants, but the long johns had done the damage. <laughs> Chrissy didn't score that night, and neither did any of the three of us, but I can honestly say I don't think I cried laughing in my life as much as I did over those two days. Thank you very much. Oh, Barney, you had that audience eating out of the palm of your hand. Brilliant. Okay, let's go back briefly to the black box for a short intermission. Story Pig is a big China pig, which is the real-life equivalent of Patreon and PayPal. You'll understand what I mean. Just want to point out that 10 by 9 is always free, always will be. If uh, there's anything that calls itself a 10 by 9 and they charge in, it's not a 10 by 9. It's free for a very good reason. We want anyone to be able to come along to 10 by 9. But also, we want the people telling the stories not to feel that their story has to have a monetary value. That people worry if people have paid that their story needs to be really good. That just wipes out the people we want, the nervous, the shy, and the reluctant. So that's why it's free. However, we do have some overheads. So we have over here, you'll see lovely Margaret is holding our story pig. And if you can, if you can see your way to throw in some uh, dosh in there on your way out, that would be great. Absolutely no pressure whatsoever. These are difficult times. But my God, we are warm tonight, aren't we? <laughs> Woo, save on your heating, come to town by nine. So if you can see your way to throw in a few quid, that would be great. I say this every week on the podcast, the greatest support you can give us is to be here and to listen. And we really mean that. Thanks for the support. Okay, on to our third and final story. It was Bevan O'Donnell's first time at the Black Box, though she had told the story at an event in Antrim, which featured on a bonus pod in April this year. But this was her big debut in front of 200 people. I had saved up all my bus fares for the week and was now feeling rather flushed with a whole £5.20 to my name. This princely sum was worth all the walks home in the rain I had had to do to get it. It was Friday night and as usual, my mates and I had been planning for this all week. We were en route, ready for a night on the town, dressed to the nines with our denim jackets and boot-cut jeans. Our slightly orange faces painted with Collection 2000 foundation and mascara. <laughs> Brittany or Christina, we all wanted to be one of the two. First item on the night's agenda, where can we get ourselves some drink? <laughs> we were well below the age to legally buy alcohol, and so acquiring it was a tricky affair. Of course, there were all the usual tactics. We could try to get it ourselves. If that failed, we could chance our arm and ask a passerby to go in for us. A high-risk strategy, but successful sometimes nonetheless. If that didn't work and we were feeling desperate, we could always pinch a bottle from someone's parents' stash and hope to God they did not notice. The first method was preferable if we could make it work. Of all my friends, I seem to have the best success rate of getting served at the off-license. This is somewhat of a mystery, as I was in fact the youngest of our little clan and had been told on multiple occasions that I had a round, babyish face. Perhaps my success was due to the magical effects of the Collection 2000 Foundation. <laughs> Being typical teenagers, we were wily, tactical, and determined in our pursuit, and so, of course, 
we had figured out which off-licenses in our area tended not to ask too many questions. We picked one to target and the mission was on. Given my higher than average success rate, I was the lucky agent nominated to go in. Confidence was the name of the game. I had to try and look self-assured, even though really I was jelly on the inside. At that time, I thought the key to confidence lay in wearing high heels. And so I would bring a pair of my mum's boots with me in a bag whilst we journeyed to the off-license. I couldn't actually wear them the whole way because one, I couldn't really walk in high heels, and two, my mum's size five shoes were too tight on my size six feet. My friends and I would find a suitable spot around the corner from the off-license where I would don these two tight boots. Like a crowd that had come to bid farewell to an intrepid explorer, my friends would wish me good luck as I'd set off towards the off-license. <laughs> In my mind, the click-clacking of my mum's shoes added a sense of glamour as I strode off, shoulders back, chin up, trying to look confident, reminding myself I was doing this for the good of my mates, my team. If, I, if it worked, I'd be a hero. With my collection 2000 makeup, denim jacket, and my mum's two tight boots on, I felt terribly sophisticated. I'm sure I looked it too. <laughs> I walked into the store and perused the options, spending some time in the fine wine section. <laughs> <laughs> I looked thoughtfully at the labels, you know, the way adults do. <laughs> then, uh, like all people of legal age, I rejected the fine wine and I opted to for a slightly different palette. Walking to the cider section, <laughs> I would select the cheapest, largest bottle of cider they sold for under a fiver. I'd then pick it up as if it was really what I'd wanted the whole time, just the refreshing, refreshing tipple I needed. I click-clacked up to the counter, trying not to stumble in the heels or give myself away. Would I hear those dreaded words, have you got any idea, love? <laughs> the woman behind the counter looked at me. I looked back, the moment of truth. I tried to maintain eye contact. I give a smile, aiming for friendly, but not too friendly, lest I seem desperate. And then that sound, beep, beep, she'd made up her mind. She was putting it through. <laughs> That'll be £4.50, love, she said. Oh, and 10 Lambert and Butler too, please, I responded. My mates were waiting expectantly outside, wondering what had gone on. Had I been successful? I couldn't wait to show them. I paid, pick up, picked up the bag and walked to the exit, resisting the urge to run before the store clerk changed her mind. I kept my cool until I got around the corner, but the moment I was out of sight and saw my mates, I let out, I let out a triumphant, woohoo! <laughs> I had done it. I was the hero of the night. Social approval is everything to a teenager. Boy, did I need it. Being the supplier of the bruise was certainly one way to get it. This was how my relationship with alcohol started. Excitement, anticipation, expectation. I was a bit younger than most, sure, but it was still pretty typical teenage behavior. It felt daring and rebellious. It seemed like a coming of age. By drinking, I thought I was entering into a fun new realm owned by adults, one that I was desperate to be a part of. It was a well-intentioned, if somewhat misguided way to have fun and fit in. Fast forward a decade from that night. I'm in my early 20s. On the service, I appear successful top grades at university, I had recently returned from a year in America on a competitive study abroad program. But I had very few friends. I lived alone. I was dependent on alcohol. I barely noticed it happen. I didn't see it take hold. It crept up on me. I was never a good drinker, never a good drunk, 
but at least those early drinks were social. Somewhere along the way, that changed, and I back began to drink alone. At first occasionally, then a few times a week, and then every night. I could always find a reason to justify it, a rationale. I went out. If I went out to work or to uni, I felt better knowing I had a beer in the fridge for that night. Early 20s, desperately lonely, I would cling to my laptop watching box sets and smoking cigarettes, reassuring myself that this was okay, it was normal. Sure, all young people drink, I'm fine, I need a way to unwind given how hard I work, I rationalised. At some point, I crossed a further invisible line where I could no longer stop. It wasn't just nights anymore. I would have periods of binging. I would wake up and I had to drink more. If I didn't, I would go into withdrawal. Only in my early 20s, experiencing full-blown alcoholism. I would become terribly ill when I stopped drinking. Days of sickness and insomnia, a living hell. I was terrified. I was desperate for it to stop, but I could not stop drinking. I felt hopeless. At one point, I was so unwell, I was hospitalized. I was incredibly ashamed. The doctors told me I had to stop drinking. I didn't believe them. I told them, I was fine last week. I've just had too much this time. I was so desperately deluded. It took me a long time to pull myself out of it, and it took a lot of help. I got a counselor. I went to one of those meetings you see on American TV programs where they talk about 12 steps, eat buns, and drink bad coffee. Turns out they're here in Belfast too, and thank goodness for that. They're saving lives every day. It took a while, but with support, grit, and determination, I stopped drinking, and I stayed stopped. Rather than numb my emotions with alcohol, I faced up to the pain that had had me drinking in the first place. I persevered. The folly of youth mixed up with a culture that relies far too heavily on alcohol and glamorizes it far too much. My crippling people-pleasing, perfectionism, self-awareness, and need to be liked made me a prime candidate for alcoholism. It got me very young. Fast forward almost a decade. Today, I'm nearly seven years sober. Today my life is awesome, full of joy, fun and happiness. There was a time when I would have gone to great lengths to get wasted, now I'll go to great lengths not to. For a long time I was too ashamed to be open about my experience, there was such a stigma to alcoholism. But to paraphrase the legend Tyrion Lannister, if you wear who you are as your armour, it can't be used against you. Teenage me showed a lot of tenacity and determination when she put her mind to something, even if it was only to get served at the off-licence. It's those same characteristics that have helped me get and stay well. Nearly two decades later, I'm in my local Sainsbury's. I go up to the counter and ask to buy a lighter. I haven't smoked in years. I'm planning to use it for some fancy Yankee candles. <laughs> Words harking back to another lifetime, they still manage to fill me with a sense of shame and dread. You got any idea, love? <laughs> Oh, Bevan, how brilliant. What an amazing story, told with such honesty and clarity and humour. The audience fell in love with you that evening. Thank you so much. And that is it for this podcast. You can keep in touch with us on Twitter, Facebook and Instagram. Also email, which is story at 10 or just come to the website, 
We have a few extra events coming up, so keep an eye out for those. And please, if you can, tell as many people as you can about the podcast. It is the best way to get us noticed. And don't forget, you can maybe give us a wee review or a rating. Thanks to the lovely people who help us bring 10 by 9 events to life, Margaret, Leanne and Chris. Thanks to the lovely people of The Black Box, our gorgeous audience and all our storytellers, but especially Jared Devlin, Barney Gribben and Bevan O'Donnell. I'm Paul Doran and I'll be back with another podcast soon. But for now, bye bye.